On episode 332 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll learn how to make your opponents miss with Jonathan Stokey. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the show. Really excited to have you listening in to today's interview. And this one is with a returning guest, Coach Jonathan Stokey. He was last on episode 282 of the Tennis Files podcast, where we talked about how to win singles matches. And if you don't know about Jonathan, he actually hosts the Baseline Intelligence podcast, which is a fantastic show. And he is a tennis coach in Charleston, North South Carolina. He spent 14 years as both a student athlete and coach with the Duke men's tennis program. He helped Duke to two ACC championship titles in 2003 and 2006 and was also named the ACC Tournament MVP in 2006. Funny enough, uh, we were chatting during the show, and my team, UMBC, when I played on the team, we traveled up to Duke and played them in the first round of the NCAA Tournament. But unfortunately, Jonathan had graduated the year before, so I didn't see him there. But pretty cool connection there. And Jonathan is a former All-American and two-time All-ACC pick, and was also named the ITA Carolina Region Assistant Coach of the Year. Jonathan actually became the first student athlete in program history to win the ITA National Arthur Ashe Sportsmanship and Leadership Award in 2006 while also earning the USTA Sportsmanship Award. And this show today is going to get into the concepts and the ways that you can make your opponents miss. And, you know, as we'll talk about, obviously, tennis is definitely a game of errors. So when you use these different strategies and and choose them wisely, then you'll be able to make your opponents miss more and therefore you're going to win more points and more matches. Uh, We also get into um, how this is applicable to doubles as well as singles, of course, and then surf techniques. So a couple different ways that you can get more pop on your serve and also uh, the importance of recording and analyzing your play. So We'll get into all that and more, so hope you really enjoy this one. And without further ado, here is my interview with Coach Jonathan Stokey. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm here with my good friend Jonathan Stokey, and uh, it's a pleasure to have Jonathan on again. Uh, he is a very esteemed member of the show, <laughs> and uh, he also hosts a fantastic podcast as well called the Baseline Intelligence podcast. So you should all definitely check that out. We'll have links in the show notes to this and, and all of the links that we mentioned. So Jonathan, how have you been? I've been good, man. It's It's been too long since we spoke. I think we, we did an episode maybe about a year ago and my inner alarm was going off that we needed to chat again. So I'm glad we're doing it. Yeah, you've got a pretty, pretty good inner alarm there, my friend. So yeah, yeah. I mean, first off, how's everything been with you and tennis world and, you know, teaching and, and content creating and all that? Everything's good. You know, podcast has done great this year. Good guests. I'm sure just like you, you leave every episode. You feel like you learned a ton. The Instagram is still exhausting. It's just the daily, <laughs> the daily grind of continue to put out content, put out tips. And then on court, I was telling you before the show, I had a bunch of players graduate and they're off in college now. So I've been doing more adults, adult camp type things. And I actually love it. I love coaching adults because they're very into it. Oh, yeah. um, they want to get better. And that's the best type of person to teach is someone who's just dying to improve. So um have been busy in, in every area, but as always, we'll make an hour of time for you any day of the week. Thanks again, my friend. And yeah, curious with the uh, with the adults. I mean, what's maybe like one big overarching concept that you've been working on with them to improve? Because that's, you know, that's our main audience. So yeah. Yeah, I would say, I mean, th- Every player, whether they're doing singles or doubles, they all have their own technical issues or tactical issues. The biggest concept that I I find myself discussing with every single adult is it takes like thinking hundreds instead of ones. It's not going to take you one lesson or one rep to improve your serve or to improve the way you play the Australian formation in doubles. 
it's going to take hundreds of reps. And that doesn't always have to be with a coach. You don't have to pay for that all the time. But just how long and how many reps it takes to truly improve. A lot of them will work on something and five minutes in, it's not going great and they're panicking. And you're like, whoa, this is going to take a while. You know, that's why improvement is difficult. And so everybody struggles with that. They want that instant gratification. They get the information. They think they should apply it right away. And so a big part of those lessons is just trying to let them know, hey, it's normal. It's normal to suck at first. It's normal to improve slowly. But if you make those tiny improvements over a substantial period of time, you're going to get where you want to go for sure. It's just going to be longer than you want. Yeah, yeah. Well put, Jonathan. I, I frequently think about the image of the the two individuals like who are like digging and you know there's the one who is like turning back after and you see like you know one inch left until the diamonds and then the other ones that's still going there so yeah that's that's really big and uh yeah a lot of times it's tough for coaches you know because you get these questions from students asking like oh like how long will it take for me to get this change you know fixed and i guess it i mean varies among you know individuals and type of change you're making and, and whatnot right I, I just released an episode I recorded a couple months ago, uh, Dr. John Finn. So he wrote a book called The Habit Mechanic. And mm-hmm. I was asking him like, well, how long does it take to reprogram a bad habit? And he was like, well, 21 days is a bunch of BS. He's like, if you've been engaging in negative self-talk for three years, you're not going to get rid of that habit in three weeks. That's going to take yeah. you a long time. And if you've only been doing something poorly for a month, then maybe it only takes a month to get rid of that. So depending on what it is, if it's just a technical motion, but someone's been making the wrong forehand stroke for five years, I don't think you're going to get significant improvement in two or three weeks. Like that's just not going to happen. But if it's just a quick mindset shift, you just started playing, you've only been thinking about the game for a month or two, that stuff could happen quickly. So it's all player specific. But Again, I know how I am with my own game or with my golf game. I want things to happen quickly. And very rarely does someone improve faster than they think they should because their expectations are so incredibly high. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of negative self-talk, you, you reminded me about, um, I think it was Jeff Salzenstein and he was, I wish I could remember which expert he was quoting, but he said something to the effect of like, uh, verbalized negative self-talk is like 10 times more powerful than, you know, uh, a verbalized like positive phrase something like that so that was pretty crazy but did, did you ever have any issues with uh negative self-talk like when you were a player uh you're still a player but you know younger yeah well i'm not a player anymore by the way i listened to that episode with jeff it was awesome and i do remember that there was you know something like a negative thought was six to one i think and then if you said it out yeah. loud it was ten to one which i found super fascinating for me i i'm a not a very emotional person so it was easier for me once I was over about the age of 13 or 14 to not engage in negative self-talk because there's so much information out there that shows that it's, you know, anti-improvement, you're not going to perform as well. And I'm like, okay, well, that makes sense. So why would I do something that's not going to help me? And then, you know, let's say I play a bad set. I've got a problem now. Like I'm not playing well and I'm down a set. If I start talking negatively to myself, now I've got two problems. Like why, why do I want to add issues to what's going on? I want to eliminate issues. So my attitude, I can control it. I go, cool, that's never going to be a problem for me to match. My forehand might be an issue. My conditioning might be an issue, but something that I can easily control, I'm not going to let that be my downfall. So like I said, I know it's easier for me. That's a very pragmatic way of looking at it, but I've never understood You know, when someone misses a ball and then throws the racket. I'm like, you lost the point and now you have a cracked racket. Like, you're, you, Nothing got fixed by throwing that racket. You know what I mean? And so just looking at it pragmatically like that and and realizing I just want to take actions that help my own game or help my students games. It makes it pretty simple to not, not engage in negative self-talk. Yeah. hundred percent, Jonathan. I've been reading this book called awareness by Anthony DeMella. I think I posted it like once or twice on um, IG, but yeah, you know, it talks about um, how, you know, we're responsible for our, our own reactions. You know, it's like there's a stimulus put out there. Right. But then it's, it's, it's up to you. Like, you know, you can, feel bad about it or you can you know take it in a different way and feel positive so it's really like your fault you know in a sense like the for your reaction you're responsible for it so yeah i mean so what do you when you're coaching your students and like and you hear the negative self-talk pop up like what what's your approach to you know helping with that so the number one thing that i find leads to that negative self-talk is like expectations that are out of whack 
So they think they should serve yeah. 75%. Okay, well, right. if that's what you think is going to happen on your first serve, then you're going to think you stink every day. Like, I can understand why you would be frustrated. Or if you thought you were never going to miss a forehand, I got news for you. It's probably going to happen in like the first five points. So you're already going to be going, what's going on? So a big thing is getting them to understand the percentages, getting them to know what amount of missing is normal, what amount of winners are normal, and so that their expectations are aligned with reality. That's that's number one. Um, And then number two is we just like, honestly, we might go for a couple of weeks with players who have a hard time with it. We might say you can still be as negative as you want. It's just every time you win a point, you have to do something positive. Let's just start balancing Mm -hmm. it out. Let's just go there. Like you don't have to eliminate negative, but you have to do both for a while and they'll do both. And after a while they start getting tired because after every (laughs) point you're doing something. It's like right. exhausting. It's exhausting yes, to pump yeah. your fist and scream. It's like, and they eventually just get to the point where they're kind of like a baby who's been crying for a while. They're like, it's just easier to do nothing. And you go, awesome. That's great. Nothing is fine. Mm. Um, and then over time, eventually, hopefully they're seeing the benefits of being positive. So it was funny. We had a story at Duke. This was like 10 years ago. And obviously energy in doubles is a massive thing. And so we're always talking to our guys, hey, you know, jog, jog in and out of points, pump your fist, say come on a couple times, like get yourself going. And this team was down 5-0 in practice. It was like an inner squad scrimmage. They're down 5-0 and their energy was really poor. And I'm like, man, you know, we got to pick that up. Like that's, that's the number one thing before tennis. And they're like, oh, Stokey, it's not about that. Like we're serving bad. I'm like, okay, but you have this controllable thing that you could do. And they, <laughs> typical 19 to 22 year old guys, they got super sarcastic with it. And started screaming, come on, like, so let's just be like, so over the top. And they came back in one, seven, five. Oh, wow. And and at like five, three, (laughs) at like five, three, I could see one of them kind of give me a look like, damn, like he's kind of right about this a little bit, Like (laughs) totally doing it just to rub it in my face. And they actually started playing better. They had more energy. And so I think everybody has that little light bulb moment where they go, man, if I fuel myself with really positive thoughts it's impossible to hurt my own game. And it's very, very likely I'll perform closer to my best. So why not do it? But yeah, just to answer your question again, the the initial part is we have them do both. We just say add positive and then we find that eventually they kind of remove the negativity on their own. Yeah, that's really nice. Great stuff. Um, And yeah, that approach I actually haven't heard of before. So that's amazing. Yeah, you reminded me of a story. One of my teammates is another college tennis story. uh, John uh, from Brazil, he... um, he played in like an American uh, university invitational back when they had a team. We all, you know, the whole team played it. But like, I remember he was playing like really well against like some player from American and like he was getting, but he was getting like so amped up. It was like ridiculous, you know, like just like getting to one zero against the guy, like yelling come ons everywhere. And then he was like completely exhausted and then he lost like three and one or something like that. So I, I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, as you kind of mentioned, is there, like a balance, like you kind of have to know like how much is too much, like when you're um, giving the emotions out there. I think just, just like anything, it's, it's so personal. So I'm super stoic. I was super calm. You know, if I ever hit an incredible shot on an important point, I would maybe like shake my racket. Like that was the extent of the positive emotion you're going to get from me. I would I don't know that I ever said, come on out loud. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. If I could go back in time, that's something I would probably do a little differently. I'd do it a little bit more, but I'm mm. never going to be Rafa, you know? And actually, um, <laughs> yeah. I spoke to Rajiv Ram two days ago. Nice. I'll be releasing his episode in a, in a week or two, but Sweet. he was telling me, because growing up, we were both super quiet. And now I see him in these matches. I watched him at the Open this year, and he's like going yeah. nuts. Yeah. He's like, hey, I had a hard time, but I realized I play a little better, but he's like, my partner plays a lot better when I'm really fired up. Mm. So he's like, I just learned to get out of my comfort zone. I did it for a couple of months. Now it's not that big a deal for me and everybody plays better. So it's just like a muscle. You can get it stronger. If you do it more, you get less tired, but there is some type of individual personality trait that could, you know, maybe limit, are you going to be a Rafa or are you going to be like a little bit more of like a calmer, like a sinner type person? Right, right, right. Awesome. And then also kind of building upon another point you made earlier, um, you know, errors and um you know as a lot of us know like with craig o'shaughnessy's data it's like what is it 77 percent of points and in errors and and we should be knowing that you know before we uh, get frustrated with missing a couple forehands but you know you you made a really nice uh instagram post and you know we'll link to to that as well but like about uh, making people miss basically uh producing errors and so there's different um you know 
ways you can do that, obviously. So I thought maybe we would kind of talk uh, more in depth than, than Instagram will allow, you know, generally mm-hmm. speaking, for those posts. So, yeah, I mean, maybe tell us about, you know, some of these different uh, strategies and then we can kind of delve deeper into them. So Craig is famous. He kind of listed eight ways to make an error. And I always simplify that to even five more for kind of like Mm. my super recreational amateur players. So he talks about using your pace, which could be fast or slow. Uh, He talks about using direction, you know, moving someone off the court or honestly hitting down the middle too and jamming someone, but the direction of the ball, um, hitting deep. So depth. So you could either hit deep or short. Uh, You can hit mess with the height right? Mm-hmm. You can hit very high or very low, and then you can mess with the spin. You can be mixing the spins, adding a ton of spin, taking spin off. Those are five very simple ways that he has described, which is great, where if you can do one of those, that's awesome. If you can do two at the same time, you might be able to get a short ball. If you can do three of those things at the same time, you might generate an error, right? Mm-hmm. And super simple way of looking at it. What I <clears throat> What I find is if I ask any player, I'll list those out and I'll say, which two do you use or do you like to use? They will mm-hmm. always say pace and angle. Oh, really? Oh, always. not me. Not oh, me. Good. Well, that's because you're smart because you've been hosting a podcast for a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. They'll, they'll all go, oh, you know, I, you know, I hit pretty fast and oh, I can run them off the court. And like, you will hit more winners that way for sure, using pace mm-hmm. and using angle. Uh, but also that's the riskiest for you. Yeah. You know, if, if I said million dollars, can you make a forehand? I guarantee you wouldn't hit it fast. You'd hit it slow because you know you make more balls when you hit slower and you would probably aim more to the middle. So those two are good ways to make someone miss. Generally speaking, I I use those two as my last for players. I go, let's hit Mm. high with spin and deep. That's mine. Yeah, (laughs) you're going to be consistent, which by the way is one of his other ways to just making balls will make people miss. But high, heavy, deep is unbeatable. It's very difficult to hit high, heavy, and deep all the time. That's why yeah. you don't see people doing it. But that's a great goal where not only will you be consistent yourself, but that's a challenging ball that your opponent will miss or give you a short ball. And then when it's short, you can use a little pace. You can use a little direction, and it's less risky. Yeah, love that. Love that. So, yeah, as, as I mentioned, you know, for me, I, I like spinning and depth the most. Yeah, and and so I guess is that what you would also recommend for for amateurs? Like, are there a couple combos that are like the easiest, you know, for them? Like, you know, three out of four five. Yeah, I would definitely. It's funny because I would say ninety nine percent of what I coach, I I would coach the number one guy at Duke that I had, who at one point was number one in the country, great player, mm-hmm. and the same way I coach a three zero adult. Like to me, it's all mm. rel- like all these issues. The issues that I hear from a three zero, the mindset the struggle with tactics is the same conversations I had with guys at Duke. Mm, And I know people don't, you know, it's like I said, 99%, there's 1% that's a little different, but like most (laughs) of the stuff carries over. And we talked about this at Duke, like hit high, heavy. We didn't tell guys just rip the hell out of the ball and (laughs) let's, let's go for incredible angle. Like we have to do so much. A lot of times it was like, Hey, let's play simple. Let's play discipline. Let's hit high, heavy and deep. And that guy on the other side of the net is dying to lose to you. He's go, he's go, he's going to do stupid shots. He's going to get undisciplined. He's going to get tight. He's going to do all these things because every player I've ever coached does those things. And some of them do it a lot and some of them only do it a little bit. And so, yeah, if I'm coaching a three O or, or an adult, I'm going, Hey, high, deep with some spin. And by the way, if you don't hit it deep, it's all good. Like they're not going to hit a winner. They're, they're not, they, they, they don't. That's why O'Shaughnessy says what 25% winners divided by two players. It's just not a way to lose a match. And so once you kind of accept that and you get very, very simple is when you make your biggest gains as a player. Mm. Gotcha, gotcha. And then, yeah, I mean, in terms of, you know, directions, I know you said, obviously, we don't want to like go for extremes, but like, do you have any preference in terms of where we're directing that the ball to? Yeah, so, uh, you know, Craig's famous for breaking up the court into A, B, C, and D. A is the outer half of the deuce. B is the inner half of the deuce, C is the inner half of the ad, D is the wider half of the ad. So generally speaking, we'll do some drills for people to help them understand, but our, we, have, we all have big egos as tennis players. So we all make this, this subconscious assumption that we're going to hit the ball where we aim. And we don't. And we know that because Novak hits 30 balls in the net every match. And I'm guaranteeing you he wasn't aiming in the net, <laughs> which means Novak Djokovic hits lower than he thinks whatever, 20, 30 times a match. And he hits wider than he thinks 
10, 15 times a match, right? And we're not Novak. So think about what we do. So A, B, C, and D, I, I want to say they're six and three quarters feet wide. Um, and so we'll just feed balls to people and say, hey, can you hit it in letter B five times in a row? And most of the time they can't. They'll accidentally hit an A or they're accidentally hit in C. So what I like people to do is to aim for B and C. Mm. You can aim on the outer edge of that if you'd like. That's fine, depending on the ball. And what will happen is you'll hit B and C sometimes. You'll accidentally hit into A or D sometimes. And by the way, hitting to A and D is awesome. That's great. I like it when it's an accident. Because if you're aiming at A and you pull it, now you've missed a ball wide and that point is over. If I aim to B and I hit it in B, I'm alive. It's a great shot. If I pull it and hit it to A, wow, that's even better. If I catch mm -hmm. it late and hit it to C, I'm still alive. Like I've got three right. good options there if I'm aiming to B and C. And I think especially at the lower levels, we know control is not great. So just because you say you're aiming down the middle of the court, I've watched warmups. That ball's going everywhere. But <laughs> so people always go, well, I don't want to hit to B and C. I don't want to just hit down the middle. And I always say, don't worry about it. You're not, you're not going to hit it there. Like right. the control's not that. You're going to hit it everywhere, but it'll be a more efficient, higher percentage way to play. So I'm a big, big B and C guy. Mm. Love that. Love that. Um, and then in terms of the spin, I mean, you know, obviously we have our strengths and weaknesses and whatnot. Like, how, do you like to, you like players to like vary it quite a bit, like hit some spin, hit some top spin, hit some slice, all that. Or, I mean, what, what are your, any, any other thoughts on that particular um, category? Yeah. I mean, it's a huge advantage if you have a slice that you like, that you can rely on, whether that's a forehand or a backhand, you know, the heavier you can hit your top spin ground strokes with. That's great. Not only will the ball bounce up, it'll weigh way more on your opponent's string, which gets some errors or some short balls. But yeah, a lot of times uh, if you vary anything, it can work out very well for you. So one thing at Duke we used to do all the time was two fast, one slow. We'd hit mm. two normal ground strokes and then on purpose hit a slower one. And I can't mm. tell you how often people would miss the slow ball. Mm. And if you go two topspin, one slice, that's, that's an issue. You know, if you go too wide, one middle. So any variation like that where you keep your opponent guessing is good. But again, you have to have the tools to do it. So if you don't have a slice, you can't, you can't vary spins in a match. Like that's just not going to happen. And if you don't have good racket speed and a closed racket face, you're not going to be able to get a ton of topspin. Uh, so just working on that. But yeah, any type of variation I've found works very, very well. Yeah, awesome, awesome. And, you know, trying to apply this to the doubles game is there any other any you know differences in particular with that that we should kind of be aware of with respect to the you know the five you know categories yeah i mean i would say in doubles the what you can also do in addition to how you hit the ball is just your positioning so yeah. you know i always feel like you can control in doubles a little bit more what your opponents do so mm -hmm. let's say i was playing you and I'm at the net. My partner is serving. Uh, so you're already smiling. I like that. You're visualizing this. So I, I'm at the net. My partner is serving. You're returning. And we're in regular formation in the deuce court. Okay. First point of the match. Where are you going to go? Cross court. Exactly. I, I would assume you go, oh, maybe Stokey can still volley. By the way, cross court, higher percentage, whatever. You're, you're going cross. I know that. Now, what happens if we start the match and I go Australian to start? You're still going to go yeah, cross court? Oh, uh, no. <laughs> exactly. So I'm telling you where I want you to return with yeah. my positioning. If I want you to return line, I go Ozzy and I go, he doesn't want to hit the ball to me. So now no. I've got you hitting the return that I want you to hit, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one concept, but also just how much of the middle you decide to cover. I can try to tempt you into lower percentage plays. Yeah. If I coach a lot, I've got you thinking about me. So mm. I always, you know, whatever, you can lie to yourself. I think it's true, but I also would lie to myself a little bit. If I'm active up there, every time the baseline are missed, I'm like, that's because of me. Like, I did that. You know, like, For sure. he, took his eye, he took his eye off the ball. He was thinking about me. He might not have been, but it definitely gives me the courage and the motivation to continue being active and doing things up there. But yeah, I always felt like I could talk people into low percentage shots just by positioning myself in the high percentage area, realizing they probably don't want to hit to me at the net. So now I've got them trying risky things, which... They'll pull off sometimes, but not enough to win the match. I'll end up winning for that. So, yeah, I would say doubles positioning is a great way to make people miss for free. 
Definitely, man. I mean, when I'm at the baseline in doubles and I'm I'm hitting against a high level net player, like I can I can like feel and even like slightly kind of see them like moving. It's not it's not great, you know. Then you last minute you're like, oh, I really gotta you know pull this a little wider, and then you you know you'll miss sometimes. And then also on the return, you know, that's number one you know problem. Like my partner will tell me like, oh, I you know I was distracted by the net player, um, and you know that will happen to me too sometimes. I'll try to remember to try to pick my spot, you know, and just go for it. Like when I'm returning, otherwise you're going to get distracted by the net player. Um, so, and so on yeah. the flip side, though, if I was the baseliner and you were super active at the net before the point, I might talk to my partner and go, hey, I'm going down the line because he's moving yeah. all the time. Fine, you make your decision, but I would also be careful to assume that that person's going to hit a volley winner. So you get distracted by the net player. You know, look, if he poaches on me, that means he gets a volley. He's still got to put it away. Yeah. Like, that's not easy. It's if true. he comes back to my side, I'm going to get it. If he goes to my partner, like they have a chance at a reflex or maybe I can track that ball down behind him. But there's always this assumption that if that net player gets the ball, they're going to hit a winner. And so people go for true. more and they miss. And so that's mm -hmm. why when you're at the net, use that to your advantage. But if you're at the baseline, just go, it's okay if they hit a winner. Like they'll do it sometimes, but just because they get the volley doesn't mean the point's over. And that will help you be more solid from the baseline. Yeah, that's a really great point, Jonathan. I mean, better to, you know, get it back, hit your spot that you wanted rather than like now you're going for like a super low percentage shot like we talked about with the directions and then you just don't even have a chance because you hit it out. Right. So, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Did you use a lot of, uh, a lot of, um, let's see, uh, eye formation in, in college as well? Yeah, so... We did, if you watch guys now, they do, like Rajiv and I used to call that semi-eye, but sometimes mm. when people go eye formation, they kind of like straddle or split the center service line. Uh. And what you'll watch a lot of pros do, I actually haven't seen, I've seen every pro team do this, is they go eye formation, but they're kind of slanted towards the side they're serving to. So mm -hmm. they might be like a yard off the center if they're serving to the ad court, they'll See. be eye formation right of that center line. And that's just because you're covering everything from there. If you're in the center of the court, you're actually leaving too much of the down the line open. So we used to do semi-eye a lot. We would do regular a fair amount on second serves, especially when we served body. And then almost never use Ozzy as a player. As a coach, we used it a lot. So I'll give you one example of uh, formations and kind of how we used it. It's interesting. In college, so you play a six-game set with no ad. So let's just say that the match goes to a tiebreaker. So it's 12 games. That means everybody serves, what am I? What's 12 divided by, by four? Three? Everybody serves three games, right? Yeah. And so no ad, like the most a returner can play per game is four points. So that means against each server, the maximum you could do is return 12 points. That's not a big sample size, right? Yeah. So we had a guy with a stress fracture in his right hand. So he could hit backhands. He could not hit forehands. He could only slice it. And so in the deuce court, we would do three things. And it was basically all the same. It just looked different. Mm -hmm. So we would go regular formation. He was serving. And we yeah. would have the net guy poach. Mm -hmm. And my guy would cover lines. So if the returner went down the line, he was right-handed. From the deuce side, he would hit a running backhand. Great. Mm. He, he can hit a backhand or the net guy mm. got the ball in the poach. Then we would do I and we would do I right. And so again, the net guy either got the volley or they returned down the line and my guy got a backhand or we would do Australian. Right. And it's the same thing. They go down the line <laughs> backhand. So we gave them three <laughs> different looks to start the point. Right. To accomplish the same thing. We either want the net guy getting the ball or my guy hitting a backhand. And when it's only 12, 15 points, you're like, they didn't catch on because they missed a return. And, <laughs> you know, one time they lobbed and it's like, then it was another 15 minutes before that guy served again. Mm. And you're just doing the same, you're accomplishing the same thing with just a different look. So yeah, smart. Um, I, I find most people just do regular because it's simple and they've always done it. And that's not really the best reason to pick a formation. If you can learn how to do all three, if someone's not comfortable with Australian, that's a huge advantage for you. I'd love to play a game that I know the rules to and you don't. Yeah. So if I know how to play down the line and poaching and all that, and you've never done it, why would I go regular? You know, I, I, yeah. I want something you're uncomfortable with. So I would absolutely recommend for everybody to get really good at all three and then mm -hmm. figure out based on your opponent, which one you think might be the most effective. Yeah. Great stuff. The, the, the one that I probably have done the least is like Australian, but then the net player like goes back and like poaches. Have you ever done that? 
Yeah. So the Australian guy would then go back to normal. Yeah. He would only yeah. be poaching regular. Yeah. So yeah. the biggest thing is when it, when they go Australian, let's say that we'll use the deuce court example, right? So the net person would be standing on the right side of the center service line, the mm -hmm. server and the, and the net person on the same side of the court, even though that net person is technically covering the right half, they should be moving left after the serve. Hmm. Because they're over covering the cross court. So even though they right. still are responsible for that half, you're always moving towards the side that's serving and you're pinching off that down the line. And then that's a really difficult cross court angle return to get by them and by their, uh, the returner's partner's head as well. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, you could poach from there. That's a lot going on. I think it's tough to get that down the line return if you're poaching from Australian There's distance. Yeah. Yeah. But the biggest thing is that you're always still pinching it to the side that you serve to. Hmm. Right. Got and so that's it. a mistake people make is they stand way far over and you're just out of the point. Like you have, <laughs> yeah. you have forced them to go down the line, but you're not doing anything up there. You want to make sure you're at a minimum straddling the center service line after the serve, if not on the same side of the court as the serve. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Got it. Got it. And, and just to reiterate, I really love the, the semi eye. Like, I think, I don't think I see anybody, um, you know, straddle the, the same side or, you know, yeah. The, if you're serving, if this server's on the ad side and then you do the eye, like you, you said that the, the partner should be like covering like a bit, a little bit to the right. Right. Correct. They should be okay, yeah. you know, at most, like we would tell, let's say the ad court example you had some guys who are pretty athletic, I would say you can put your left foot on the center service line. Yeah. Okay. And then gotcha. your right foot would be two or three feet to the right of it. Yeah. So you're, you're shading towards the side you're serving to. Yeah. And still probably over covering the cross court. But mm. you know, oh. my geniuses at Duke, sometimes if you didn't tell them exactly what to step on, they couldn't do it. So they, they, <laughs> there's you a lot of supposed there. to be smart over there. <laughs> exactly. I mean, Hey, I went there too. We're, we're not all smart men, but you know, so <laughs> say, Hey, just stand there. And that's a good starting point. But yeah, you, you very rarely see someone just put both feet on the center line and crouch down or just straddle it. It's just you're out of play for that down the line return. Gotcha, gotcha. I, I think I've asked you about Joey Addis, right? Like, were you there when he was at Duke? Yeah, we we were all American together my okay, senior year. Right, mm -hmm. yeah, that's sick. That's awesome. Yeah, I remember we, uh, my senior year, uh, 2007, at UMBC, we made um, NCAs because we won our uh, conference and we played you all. We went up to your university and like, so it was, was one really year after nice. I, that was that was the year after I graduated. So I just missed you. Ah uh, man, yeah, yeah, that's funny, man. But yeah, it's really nice university. Um, yeah, it's awesome doubles talk. Um, it singles as well. So like for for the server, what's your approach like to serving? I mean, yeah, just generally speaking, like you know, you you assess your opponents. Like, how how do you choose like where to serve? Uh, for singles or doubles? Oh, sorry, for doubles. For doubles. So of course you have your own strengths. So I know what serves I like. I know what serves I don't like. A big part is I need to know what volleys my net player wants on, on my team. So do they, oh, they have a horrible backhand volley. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, then we need to design serves that get people to hit cross court. Because if they go down the line, that's going to be a backhand volley. My guy doesn't like that. You know, yeah. so that, that's one thing. Um, we used to do a ton of body serves, backhand body. Mm. We would either go I backhand body left or we would do regular backhand body left. And we just wanted to jam people up, get them falling off the court a little bit. They would pull a backhand down the line to our net player, which was great. Mm. And then our net player would volley down the middle. And that was something that was repeatable on a no ad point, body serve, high percentage, jam them up so they couldn't hit that fast. It was kind of sliding and crossing from one hip to the other. So they mm. didn't really know, do I have to hit a forehand or a backhand? Mm. So that was always 
a, a top play for us in the deuce court. Generally speaking, you know, if you are limited and you go, man, I've got a great T serve and I, I don't have much else. Okay. Then that I would use your best serve as often mm-hmm. as possible mm-hmm. and then set up the formations and your poach calls to kind of work off that. Um, but hopefully you have more than one option. That's obviously going to help you hold. But yeah, we did a lot of body. Um, first serves in play are huge. In doubles, when you hit a weak second serve, your partner at the net is just a sitting duck. So mm-hmm. you go up trying to hit aces and trying to hit bombs, <laughs> and half the time that person's sitting up there, they're not going to like when you serve. So high percentage, bodies are good, jam them up. And then another tip in terms of reading it, and of course the serve has to be effective, is I found whatever way the returner was leaning is usually where the ball tended to go. Mm. So if I hit a very good serve out wide and they were falling outside of the doubles alley, yeah, the ball usually went down the line on the return. Yeah, so hard to pull across. To pull across right, and yeah, if I served yeah. in tee and they were falling towards the middle of the court, that backhand return would go inside out cross court because that's the side they were falling. If I went the serve I was telling you about, slice body, backhand body, yeah, they're kind of falling outside the doubles alley and they ended up pulling that return down the line quite a bit. Because that's the way they were moving to hit the ball. So that's kind of how we would call plays is I'm going to hit a serve, visualize which way the returner will have to move. And generally speaking, that's where we want our net player to be going because we think the return is most likely to go there. Got it. Got it. Jeez, a lot of pressure for the returner here. What do, what do we do as a returner? Uh, any any tips against all this movement and you know these crazy serves of yours? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm about to make a ton of enemies because everybody I know says they hate this, but I played a match against UNC one time and uh-huh. they went back and watched the video and Sam Paul told me I slice lobbed them 38 times in a pro set. Boom. Hell yeah. I yeah, love that so- play. I, I would sit on my backhand. I had a weak forehand. I would sit on my backhand oh. grip. And if you served there, I would annihilate it. If they served in my forehand, I would just hit this little bunt chip lob over the backhand volley of the neck uh-huh. guy. And I'd mm-hmm. come to the net. And I liked the chip lob because I didn't have to worry about the neck guy. If he's poaching, if he's staying, it doesn't matter. If the lob's over his head, I did my job. Also, I knew I could make it. So mm. I'm putting a return in play. Yeah. Um, so that's one like very brain dead way I don't have to worry about the neck guy. I'm going over him. He's he's True. irrelevant. I just have to make sure I can execute that shot. One great player I played with, Philip King. He was a four-time yeah. All-American. He won Kalamazoo twice. And he was yeah. an insane returner. Top 10 player in college, mm-hmm. top 10 doubles player. And he would just rip over the net strap. That was his first serve return target. I played 25 matches with him. About that. And every single first serve return, he said net strap. Every point. <laughs> And he would rip it. He would rip it. And just like we were talking earlier with your targets, he didn't hit it over the net strap every time. Sometimes he caught it early and it was an amazing cross court return. Mm. Sometimes he caught it late and he was jamming the guy at the net or it wasn't, but he made a lot of returns. It was very simple. Mm. He didn't worry about what the guy was doing. He just picked his spot and let it rip. And that's definitely good advice, I'm sure, as well. Dude, that's, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I guess it's funny. I do the opposite of what, what you do in terms of the return, but same idea. Like, you know, my, my forehand's much stronger than my backhand. So especially on days where I'm not feeling, you know, the backhand topspin return or flat, you know, I'll just like chip that backhand over the net player. So it neutralizes and yeah, it's, it's, it's a good play. Pretty yeah. Good. Returns in play are huge. And obviously, like I said, if you can hit a good lob, you're in business. And mo- I said, I make a lot of enemies because most adults I coach go, ah, I hate when people lob. Yeah. I'm like, okay, well, to me, that just exposes something you're not great at because I would love if people loved me. I, have a, I still have a good overhead. That's great. If you want to lob me every time, I'll, I'll take that. So mm-hmm. if you don't like when people lob, you either don't like overheads or you don't like high bouncing balls deep on the baseline and you need to work on that. And I guarantee if you're good at it, they'll stop lobbing you. Like mm-hmm. they lob you because it, it's working, right? Yeah. So, um, that's always a telltale sign of like you get exposed for something you don't like is when you go, man, I hate that style of play. Generally speaking, you're probably not beating that guy. Oh, and oh, if you hate their style of play. Yeah. Yeah. Now you got, now you know what you got to work on. Um, yeah, I, I helped teach a, a clinic with Gigi Fernandez and Peter Freeman and a bunch of people like, uh, was it? Yeah. It was this past year. Um, and yeah, with the adults that we had, uh, they were amazing. They were maybe like three Oh to four oh for the most part but yeah like when we did the overhead drills like they just hated it like they were really struggling so yeah it's really a great play then you're not going to get punished too much until you get you know four five five oh level usually so 
Yeah, amazing stuff. Um, in terms of, um, you know, I want to get onto a topic that I've, you know, me and a lot of players struggle with a lot, uh, te- serve techniques. So I was wondering, like, uh, you know, especially based off any recent, you know, instructions you've been given, like any major, you know, I guess flaws in technique that are really robbing players of power that, that you, you know, you can identify for us? Yeah, I mean, it, it's nothing new, but, you know, Vic Braden's, uh, information and research on the toss the height of the toss is always huge i start there with a lot of people we want a little first serve uh, you're talking about pace so hopefully we're not doing second serves but yeah, as a yeah, first serve the toss is out in front a little bit it's out to the uh, right side a little bit if you're a right hander it's out to the left side a little bit if you're a left hander so yeah and you only need to toss a little higher than you can reach most people just launch the toss and so Again, most people, I, I do a good job of, you know, explaining that and they, they kind of buy into it. But, you know, if someone lobbed you and hit a lob as high as they could, and I said, take that overhead out of the air, it's extremely difficult because the ball's dropping <laughs> really quickly, right? You would definitely yeah. want to let that ball bounce Oh yeah, because it's dropping faster and it's a much smaller scale. But if you launch your toss, the ball is dropping quickly and it's much more difficult to hit the ball clean. And the reason why people toss high is because they've always done it. Or some people think you're supposed to. And then when they toss high, they develop these hitches and these hesitations. And then they feel like they need to toss high because that's their favorite motion. Mm. When they throw a ball, when they throw a racket in a field, no one hesitates. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that. Yeah, so you you know instinctively, man, I want to throw this fast. Let me just go continuous motion. And then, but all of a sudden when you serve, you're supposed to have this like huge pause. Like that doesn't, it doesn't really add up and it doesn't make sense. So that's always the first thing is just getting the toss in a spot where you can swing fast and you can time it. So you're hitting the sweet spot, which ultimately will lead to more speed. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. Cause I mean, kind of a strange example, but I was, um, I was playing like dodgeball with my friends a couple of weeks ago. It was super fun. And I was just like throwing these belters, just like nailing, uh, nailing my friends and some young kids. Maybe I shouldn't have said that on the podcast, but, uh, you know, they're, the brawls don't hurt that much, but yeah. yeah, you know, just like throwing rockets and then like, you know, when I'm up to serve, like, I, I feel like there's still more, more potential power potential there. So yeah, I think a lot of that does have to do with like the toss height and whatnot, just make, making you kind of hesitate, hang out there for a while. So, um, yeah. And, no, Andy Fitzell sure. said it best too. Uh, we were talking about that on a pod from like six months ago. And if you're used to taking a pause, and then you start tossing at what I would call the optimal height. So it's a lower toss than what you were used to. You're going to feel insanely rushed at first. Yeah. Like that, of course, you have less time than you're used to. Give it a week or two. Mm. Like I've been doing that now. I don't, I don't serve much, but when I teach, I practice this motion. I toss much lower than I used to as a player. And it feels like the most natural thing in the world. Mm. So yeah, if you do it at first, you go, man, this feels bad. It feels rushed. Yeah, I get it. Like you probably have, you know, half a second less time compared to what you're used to. You're going to have to speed everything up, which is unnatural at first. Give it some time though. And I guarantee you'll hit it a little cleaner, a little more consistently. Sweet. Awesome. Awesome. Is there maybe another power source that uh, you see, um, you know? Yeah. I mean, Dr. Dr. Kovacs talks about Mark Kovacs. He talks about, you know, using the back leg. That's a, that's a big thing. Um, you know, obviously palm down people talk about that quite a bit. You know, a lot of people have a palm up waiters tray. That's a big, to me, that's a big change though. I find most Mm -hmm. people aren't willing to go from palm up to palm down and you go, here's all the work you're going to have to put in. Here's all the time. And here's all the really awful serves you're going to hit before it gets good. <laughs> yeah. Most, most people are like, um, nah, I mean, I'm not into that. So they want more power and you go, here's an option. And then they're like, nah, I don't like that option. So, you know, using your legs more for sure, trying to keep the, the toss more continuous. The palm down one is a great thing, but that's, that's major surgery for some people. And that, that's a big, big fix, a big time commitment and a big repetition commitment. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's tough. So, uh, when you were preparing for matches, Jonathan, um, I was wondering if you could maybe like walk me through like what what type of routine did you have? And then, you know, maybe if you, let's say, aren't totally pleased with like that routine, like how would you improve that? Like, are you saying like leading up to the match, like the day of? Yeah, day of, yeah. Yeah, so like when I was a player, I, I used to get incredibly nervous. I know everybody does and mm-hmm. they think it's specific mm-hmm. to them. Everyone out there is getting nervous, just yeah. whatever. I could barely eat when I was younger. Oh, um, wow. as, I got, as I got older, like it was fine. But like when I was 14, okay. it was like, man, eating yes. breakfast is going to be tough today. Like I got a big match. 
So whatever mm. I would eat two hours before I'd warm up usually well before I didn't, I didn't like to go right on the court. So okay. my warm up would be 20 minutes. It's not practice. Like my coach used to always say the haze in the barn, man, like you got what you got. You hitting for 45 minutes, the warm up isn't going to fix whatever issue you may have on that day. So get loose, keep yeah. it simple. I would warm up very slow. I'd hit medium speed. I would just get a lot of balls in play. Um, same routine, you know, whatever, middle, cross, cross, couple volleys, couple serves and returns. I would try a bunch of drop volleys at the end just because I oh, liked nice. the shot and that would kind of relax me. Mm. Um, and then leading into the match, I would just be very kind of quiet off by myself. Back then, we didn't have, you know, you had like the Walkman. <laughs> so you had to put like, <laughs> what? You had to put like, yeah, you had to put like a CD <laughs> in like an actual thing and it was like a nightmare. Uh. So it's not like I listened to a ton of music, but I was just always, I always wanted to make sure I knew exactly what I do. I would be going over it constantly in my head, like I said, because I was a psycho and I was super nervous. But hey, what, what's my best serve? Hey, what are my best plays? Hey, what do I want to mm. do on return? Just on a loop over and over and over and over again. So I was like, this is what I want to do. And then when I would get on the court, then it would be easier for me to focus on my opponent because <laughs> there was no chance I was going to fail at what I was doing. I, I already had that locked yeah. down. I was already super focused. So I could spend a little more time on them. But um, yeah, I just try to keep it the same. And then, like you said, you know, what if the what if the warm up or what if the routine didn't go well? Sure, there are some things with rain or whatever, and you got to be flexible. The big thing I always reminded myself is a good warm up does not mean a good match, and a bad warm up does not mean a bad match. So if you've ever played nice. a good set against someone, have you ever followed that up with a bad set? Okay, well, that's the same person on the same court, like one minute apart. Now think you warmed up an hour and a half before. You don't think things can change. So I used to always just treat it like, hey, I'm getting my body loose, not particularly concerned how the ball feels because I'm going to be using new balls with a different opponent, different pressure, different temperature in two hours. None of, none of the warm-up really means a whole lot in terms of result. Right, right. Yeah, just get the body ready. Yeah, that makes sense. And then kind of conversely, you know, your post-match routine. I mean, I guess first off, did you... You mentioned you were like, you know, quote unquote, a, a psycho in terms of analyzing things. I'm I'm the same, actually. But did you immediately launch into like analyzing like what happened in the match? Or did you just kind of like, you know, take a break and do your normal recovery protocols and then think about it the next day? Or what do you think's uh, best? Or maybe it just depends again on the player. Yeah. Back then, I wish I had more video because I would have watched every match oh, yeah. I ever played. And yeah. we didn't really have video a little bit in college, but it was grainy and difficult now i would i would be using swing yeah. vision i'd be using something and i'd go hey i'm i'm watching you know whatever after the match maybe talk about it with my coach or a friend go eat stretch take care of your body that night for sure i'm watching the match and taking notes and going oh interesting like i thought i did mm. x y and z the video is telling me something different i thought mm. i was standing over here i thought this guy hit so many winners oh he i've heard that i do some remote coaching in uh Someone said, oh, I, I played a little more conservative, like, conservatively, like you said, and the person hit a ton of winners. So I said, okay, let's watch it. Let's go back. And the person hit 12 winners in the match. Mm -hmm. And you're like, okay, like that's not that's even good. enough. That's three yeah. games. Had, you know, <laughs> not even three games. So yeah, just um, those. being able to go back and watch objectively what happened, I think should be a huge part of anyone's post-match you know, routine. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I Reminded me of like Virginia Tech was like one of the only matches back when I played where they actually recorded the video and I was watching it and it was like really grainy, but it was still like super helpful. But kind of on that vein, um, Jonathan, what do you what do you encourage students to use? Like, do you do you have them use stuff like Swing Vision or some other like apps and whatnot to help with the analysis part? Yeah, so I I've been on Swing Vision now for a couple months. I like that a lot. Number one, just because like if you were doing your match you can list me as a coach and it shows up on my app. So in the past, it was a huge issue with so-and-so got a GoPro, then the file size is too big and they got to email it to me. And it was like, uh, most yeah. people, they just go, oh, it's too much, I don't want to do it. Yeah. Now they just have to stick the phone on the stick, list me as a coach and it's like, cool, now I see your match, super simple. You get some stats on there, which is, which is nice. Yeah, so I, Swing Vision to me is just the simplest. And when I coach people remotely, that's the simplest way for them to get me the video. There's, there's tons of different options out there. You could pay more or less or use a GoPro if you want. But as long as you're videoing it, you have a chance to improve. If you never watch yourself, I mean, that is re really, really difficult to get a great feel for what you're doing out there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
Kind of a random question, but what's maybe like the toughest match that you ever played? And then like the big lesson or takeaway that you, that you took obviously from that match. The toughest, you mean like, uh, the most yes. challenging or the, clo- like the one where I was like, man, this mm. everything is super difficult or the, yeah, no, it's a great clarifying question. I was even trying to figure that out myself. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it can either be, it can either be like a very difficult match in terms of like ups and downs, or it could be a shellacking or you're, you know, that where some revelation came <laughs> from that. Um, so I, I give you the leeway, you know, it can be any of those. <laughs> Okay, I'll give you. Uh, I'll give you two. I'll give you an example of each. How's that? Perfect. Thank okay. you. <laughs> I played national indoors uh, team championships at Duke. So this was junior year. We were in Midtown in Chicago. I was playing two singles, and I had to play Benny Becker, Benjamin Becker. So yeah. I, I want to say he got up to top fifty in the world, maybe better than that. And I'm playing yeah. him at line two, which is hilarious. Like, how Damn. good is their team that that guy can't even play? <laughs> And I lost that guy in about, I was a quick player. So I'm going to give myself that leeway. Like I get a ball and I go, I did not go to the towel. It was probably like 43, 44 minutes. I lost Mm. one and one and two. Mm -hmm. And I learned, I'm like, Oh, okay. If uh, my serve doesn't hurt the guy then I'm going to lose. The rest of my game was not up to par with a guy like that. So Mm. most people, my serve could get me high volleys. It could get me short balls. I got a couple free points. This guy was taking full cuts. And Dude. I'm like, okay, I got to get the rest of my game going if I want to compete at that level. And when you mm-hmm. lose in 45 minutes or less, that's pretty humbling when you're cheering for your teammates and they're still in the first set. Mm. Like that, that's, that's, not, that's not a great feeling. A more competitive match would be at home. We played uh, Illinois and I played Kevin Anderson. Hilarious. Oh. <laughs> hilariously also Damn. at line two what the hell <laughs> uh, he didn't even play one on his own team which is a joke <laughs> and he, he beat me six in the third oh and i wow. played i played Man. out of my mind i played wow. great wow and nice. that was a big lesson for me too because i left and we we lost the match pretty significantly so i wasn't upset for the team and losing the close one but right um, that's where i learned where you know what like you can lose a match and take positives so I took yeah. a ton of confidence from that match. Man, my serve was great. My pickup volleys were awesome. Like I stressed them out. It was five in the third in the breaker. Like I, I played Oof. an out ball. I remember that very specifically. Oh man. The in the breaker? In the breaker, five all. He had a forehand oh, like six inches out. And like I didn't sh- see it. And like shoot. And I know, Dude, ironically, back then people used to call close balls in. That that's somehow mm. changed in the last twenty years, but respect. Um, yes, <laughs> but I left that match and I was like a huge springboard. I'm like, oh my god, I'm just as good as this guy. If it's we played that match ten times, I would have won five. This happened to be one of the five that I lost, but I'm moving forward. I'm building on what I did. So that was a big lesson for me: is that I can play with someone like that. I can use a loss as a positive and gain confidence. It's not all about the result. Um, yeah. But that line call, that line call haunts me to this day. Yeah, well, I know. Yeah, probably doesn't help too much, but we've all had similar, you know, situations like that. But yeah, that's that's tough. You remember, like the last point was it like one of his huge ass serves or what? Probably. Yeah, I can't remember. <laughs> all I remember is at five all, he hit that forehand approach. He caught it late. Yeah, and I just never saw it land. And everyone in the crowd was like, "What are you doing?" And I'm like, "I don't. I didn't uh, see it. You know, like I'm not and just no ump, no ump. So we had an ump, but you call your own lines." Yeah, yeah. And so I guess I yeah. could have just called it out and seen, but like I was like horrified of getting overruled, you know. Aww. So I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't want to hurt nice the guy, guy, you know. And so like, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, nice guys finished last, man. Lost the match. Yeah, he's still doing pretty well, my friend. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it's you know, it's, it's all good though. Um, very interesting stuff, man. Uh, I'm wondering about just like you know what you have moving forward, like any particular projects or anything you know you want us to be checking out or looking out for. Yeah. So with the podcast, uh, I've been doing, you know, every two weeks trying to do interviews. I'm going to start supplementing that in between on that week off. I'm just going to start doing, I do Instagram videos where I kind of talk about a concept, but you're trying to rush it in there, right? Like heaven forbid on Instagram, you do a video more than like 30 seconds and everyone's like, (laughs) yeah, swipe, swipe, swipe. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going to do like little five to 10 minute episodes, just something that's helpful you know, on, on the way to your match, you could listen to it and go, Oh, interesting. Like nice take on simple targets or a nice take on being positive. So, something simple that you could apply to your game. 
And then, yeah, this year, one thing I'm doing, and like I said, I, I've kind of grown to love coaching adults is doing a lot more adult camps. So we're Sweet. doing one in Charleston. It's during the Charleston Open, which is, I think, March 31st. Uh, uh, and then that first week of April. Uh, so I already did. I'm doing that camp. Uh, I'll be doing a bunch of camps for adults throughout the summer, kind of mid spring and summer, like come in for two, three days. I'm lucky that Charleston's such a nice place that people, you know, aren't afraid to go there anyway. So some things like that. Yeah. And then still just, you know, my normal on court, you know, coaching juniors, coaching of some adults in the area, coaching some people remotely. But at the end of the day, I love, I love coaching and I love learning. So I'll always be on the court to some extent. Um, and then the podcast is just kind of an extension of that. Awesome, man. Lucky to have you in the tennis world. Um, do you have any uh, links or anything like regarding like that camp and whatnot? Like, do people like sign up online or is like, what are they? So one thing, so I did a reel for that camp, which is awesome. I did a reel for that camp and I oh, had sweet. 800 people respond that day. Oh, that day. oh, I saw that camp. Yeah, I saw that. I saw, I was like, wow, this is incredible. Like, yeah, this it was is a super lot of, how's he going to fit everyone? <laughs> yeah, well, no, it was, it was for 16 people and that thing filled up quickly. So um, I'm currently in the process. I'll be messaging all those people again and letting them know kind of when I finalize yeah. dates. I'm trying to find dates. One thing I didn't even think of was um, that March 31st is Easter. So I had about 50 people who were like dying to sign up and they said, oh, I can't do it. This year's Easter, but next year, like pencil me in like I, I'm in that. So I'm going to try to find what dates work in the summer. I actually have to look at the holiday schedule, which, you know, <laughs> I never would pay attention to something like that, but now I have to. Um, so I'm still finalizing the dates. So there's no official link or anything. But um, if people follow my Instagram, I will definitely be promoting those dates like crazy and messaging people. And, um, you know, they can feel free to email me my, you know, I have my email on my Instagram page on my um, baseline intelligence bio. It's all there. So they could reach out anyway. I have a newsletter that I also advertise on. Um, it's on Substack. You can, I can give you a link uh, to that at the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, give me the yeah. One, once I finalize those dates, I'm excited. You know, you get a bunch of you know 12 to 16 adults who are all super motivated. They're all really cool. They all love the game. Some cool little perks that we have from the the brands that I work with: New Balance, Yonex, Yori. So cool, um, cool. the camps will be cool. And yeah, once I get those dates, would love to have people come out. Yeah, definitely. Those. I mean, as you've already experienced, like that. I also love working with adults. They're like so nice and. uh so passionate and it's it's beautiful so yeah sounds like you need to definitely do more camps man because you this fill up pretty quick yeah yeah good stuff and then the uh the five to ten minute uh videos that you mentioned that people can like listen to on their way to matches and whenever obviously is that was that on uh ig or like a different platform so, no so i'm going to be doing that uh starting in january so I, okay I put out a, yeah yeah so right now i've still been doing the kind of the every two weeks yeah yeah I got Rajiv coming out and then I'll do like a year end following your, your footsteps, a year end review. And cool. then starting in January, of course, I'll start with Pagula again. She starts every season. She's the goat. And then awesome. that second week of January, the second Monday is when I'll release those shorts and it'll just be on my normal podcast. Platform. Your podcast. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So you. it'll just be like a, a very short me talking to the mic. Like I've heard you done sometimes, but just a really yeah. short digestible concept that I can explain with a little more, detail and clarity than I could just trying to, I mean, jamming a thought into 30 seconds on Instagram is so difficult. It, yeah, it, yeah. Yeah. It really is. And I've heard, I've heard people say that attention spans aren't shorter. It's just the standard for content quality is higher, which mm. I agree with because the guy said, Hey, you know, people will binge 10 straight hours of Netflix. Like they have right. no problem focusing for 10 hours, but True. it's a pretty high bar, man. Like <laughs> if I'm talking about your forehand for 40 seconds, you've probably already checked out. So um, yeah, on the podcast, I'll be able to elaborate a little more and go into more detail. Nice, man. I forgot. Do you do uh, YouTube right now as well? Or I don't, uh, okay. you know, some, okay. some people have mentioned it. It's just, it's so much with, you know, recording the episode, editing a podcast episode, putting out the Instagram, yeah. being on court, coaching people right. remotely. I yeah. got to make sure my little French bulldog gets enough love and attention. Like <laughs> YouTube's just one more thing that, that I'd have to worry right. about. So right now I'm not on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. Pick and choose. Yeah, exactly. You don't want life to be rough for your dog. Sorry. The horrible pun. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm full of them. I'm full of them. Sweet, man. Um, well, really enjoyed um, chatting with you. I want to give you, you know, a decent amount of time to still get to the courts, but um. You know, as I always ask, um, just wondering if uh, there's any 
particular piece of advice that that you want to get, like leave us with, I guess, to um, help us improve our game can be about any any particular aspect of tennis. Oh, great question. <laughs> I'm going to do what so many people do on my podcast and reiterate something I've already said. But the expectation management part of your game is massive because you will always leave unhappy. If you're a 4-0, but your best day, you played like a 4-5 and that's what you expect. Mm. Then the other 100 days you play in the year, you are pissed and you think you suck and you think something is wrong. And it's okay to realize like where you are. Hey, I'm just a 4-0 or hey, I'm just a 3-0 right now. I'm working to become a 3-5, but I am not a 3-5 yet. And so if I play like a 3-0, that is okay today, as long mm-hmm. as I gave my all. So yeah, keeping your expectations in check about your own level, keeping your expectations in check about the tactics you're using and how often they should work, and then keeping your expectations in check for how long it takes to improve. It's a big thing. So I find you'll be happier. And if you're happier, you will try harder and try more consistently, and then you will actually improve. That's huge. That's huge. I definitely know so many people who have that expectation. And you know, I try to tell people like, you know, let's say like you go on vacation or whatever, and then you come back to the court. Like I've seen people do that and they're like getting so pissed that they're missing. I'm like, dude, I mean, you shouldn't expect to play like so amazing and you haven't played for weeks. Uh, you, you know, the funny thing I find is, <laughs> and this happens to me in golf all the time. If I take a long uh, break mm-hmm. and I come back, I'm just mm-hmm. happy to be on the court yeah. or on the golf course. And so you actually play pretty well. Then the second day is when you really mess it up. Because <laughs> now, now you have expectations. Oh, wow, I played right. well yesterday. But the reality yeah. is you haven't been playing for a month and you're rusty. And now you match right. that with expectations and the second day always blows. So pay attention <laughs> to that out there. The first day you're loose as a goose and you can use that, that concept and go, man, I can just come out with no expectations every day. Yeah. It's a lot easier to play yeah. that way. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. Great point. By the way, before I let you go, I mean, you seem like a very learned fellow. Um, are you reading any, uh, any good books uh, lately or anything? No, I'm the worst. I, I, so (laughs) I'm, I'm ripping on everyone for attention span, but like sitting through a whole book is tough. Like I'm always on YouTube, basically watching shorts. So, um, the the episode I just released, Dr. John Finn, he wrote the book, Uh the habit mechanic. Yeah. So I'm learning about his stuff. Sweet. I would not, I have not read the book yet. I have read mm. parts of the book. I have watched mm-hmm. his videos explaining the parts of the book that like are really interesting to me. Yeah. Um, but I would highly, you know, if people haven't listened to that episode, it's a great episode. The information is super cool. I mean, how your, your brain runs your body. So you better know how your brain works and how it's operating on autopilot. Um, but I've been in his information quite a bit. I can't technically say I've been reading the book though. <laughs> it counts man he's yeah. still supporting hey, actually yeah. would you do audiobooks because like spotify i just learned for whatever reason like a few weeks ago they said oh you get like it was either like 15 hours or eight hours of like audiobook listening so can you I mean, watch you ever do that can you watch the like it's just in nah. your ear right like there's no youtube like for some reason yeah. i need that visual too i like ah uh, yeah when i just hear someone talking for too long <laughs> especially especially in a book not a podcast because a podcast is conversational but in the book yeah, I just yeah. or like if you're just giving me information but it's kind of monotonous i'm just like i lost i lost it i forgot what you said two minutes ago um gotcha. yeah i can't do it no no i feel yeah it's um yeah everyone learns differently so visual learner is jonathan yeah got that <laughs> Uh, good stuff, man. Well, hey, um, you know, again, thanks for all the great work you're doing. Loving the podcast and you know all your content, and just really appreciate you, um, you know, being a great ambassador for the tennis community. And uh, looking forward to the next one. I'll make sure that it's uh, much less than a year uh, for us to get back together. <laughs> yeah, man, you got you got to set up like a six month alarm instead of the twelve month. But um, yeah, happy to be on here. Love talking tennis with you. Love all the information you share. I still listen to your podcast all the time. Um, So honored honored to be here, man. Thank you. Thanks so much. Take care. All right. I really hope that you enjoyed this interview with Coach Jonathan Stokey. It was great to have him on the show, and I look forward to him coming on next time as well. If you did get value and learn from this show today, then I really would appreciate it if you would leave a review for the Tennis Files podcast. You can do that at TennisFiles.com slash Apple Podcasts with an S at the end. You can definitely leave a review on any platform that you use to listen to the show, but we just find that Apple Podcasts is the biggest mover of the show in terms of the visibility and rankings and whatnot. And uh, the main thing for me is that it just seems to be the best 
mover of the show and and you know more people see it on that platform than any other so reviews on there are a bit more powerful but uh definitely thank you for any feedback you leave leave uh, for me in any form me and the team appreciate it so i also want to leave you with a quote as i do at the end of every show and this one is by fitzhugh dotson and fitzhugh said without goals and plans to reach them you are like a ship that has set sail with no destination i remember my coach in college, uh, Keith Perrier, saying that as well. So shout out to Keith, uh, who's at Naval Academy right now, but uh, with the women's program. But yeah, with that, thanks again for listening to the show. Really appreciate it. And uh, I've got some fun and informative interviews and, and shows down the pike coming forth for you. So with that, I hope you have a great rest of your week. Keep improving your tennis game, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. This is your host, Mirabana Ranshad, signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files Podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.